Morning, everyone. Tone that down just a little bit. All right. Uh, we are in the book of Judges, and we have been seeing that the great theme in the book of Judges is when there is a lack of godly leadership and influence in a culture, society, church, or family, um, things can deteriorate rather quickly. And with that lack of leadership and examples of godliness, there can immediately be this decay, not just of moral values, but of godly living in and of itself. And the book of Judges repeats this cycle of godly living and falling into turmoil. And last week we saw that this idea of karma and somehow leveling the playing field, making sure you do enough good uh, to outweigh the bad in your life is not a biblical way of thinking, not at all. Uh, but there is a certain sense in which we can see the writing on the wall. And when we say that term, the writing on the is on the wall, we're referencing this idea that if you do this and this and this, the outcome is going to be this. And it's very clear to see that if, uh, and, and we've, we've probably seen this before in our lives, uh, this, this car that just zooms past us super fast, and we know that they have no idea that this road is a speed trap, and all of a sudden, they're pulled over on the other side of the road about a half a mile down, and there is an immediate sense of satisfaction, isn't there? Like, aha, uh, you got what you deserved. I mean, we don't want accidents to happen, but when they get pulled over, you're like, yeah, yeah, you, I saw you run that red stop sign. I saw you do that. Yeah, 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 you got it. Uh, because you know that their actions eventually will lead to something negative. And that's a very biblical principle. When you do A and B, it's going to most often equal C, unless the Lord intervenes and gives you mercy, grace, and unbelievable patience to change before you get to outcome C. The children of Israel went through 350 years of that cycle of doing A, B, thinking it will equal D, but it ends up equaling C every single time. That is the great theme of Judges, that the writing is on the wall, how they live their lives is going to equal how their life is going to turn up. Now, before we get back into the book of Judges, and just to give you a, a quick idea, the Judges chapter 1 and 2 are kind of summary chapters. They're kind of just giving us the nuts and bolts of some of the past history of what's been going on in the land of Israel. Um, and in order to sort of understand that a little bit, I'm going to take us back to the book of Deuteronomy real quick. And we're going to look at two different chapters in the book of De Deuteronomy, chapter 9 and chapter 20. And in chapter 9, God gives through Moses this general instruction to Israel in verse 5. Well, actually, I'm just going to read verse 4, 5, and 6 because they just kind of go together. Um, After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, he's talking about the people that are living in the land of Israel at the time of Moses and the Exodus. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, now he's warning Israel, don't get this attitude in your mind. The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, God says to Israel, it is not on account of your righteousness. It is on account of the wickedness of these nations 
that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. I think this is important to understand, especially when we talk about Israel going into this land for conquest. Because there can be that question of, isn't it just a little unfair that God gave Israel this land, promised it some 300 years before these events, and there were already people living there? Isn't it unfair that God is doing this? kind of dispossessing this people from their land. In fact, today we'd say, oh, you, you, you can't go take over someone else's land. I mean, that's, that's wrong. That's illegal. And we are paying the ramifications even today on some of our past national history of land conquest. God says and sets the record straight from the very beginning. You're getting this land not because you are great people needing to take it over. It has nothing to do with your integrity. It has nothing to do with your character. In fact, he calls his own people stiff-necked people, getting into the same trouble time and time and time again. And in Deuteronomy chapter 20, uh, starting in verse, um, I don't know, just verse 17 and 18, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20 is sort of, what I kind of coined the Geneva Convention rules for warfare for Israel. Israel was given very special instructions about what to do and how to do it when they go into the land of Israel, when they go into the promised land. They were not supposed to wipe everything out and destroy it, a scorched earth policy, not at all. They had certain rules they had to follow. And one of those rules uh, had to do with peace. They were always required when they went to a new city to offer that city peace first. Don't attack first, but offer them peace. See if there's a way that they can negotiate this, this war that was coming. A couple times, Israel was on the good side, and, or, or Israel was able to persuade that city that peace was a great alternative. And so the city surrendered, the people and the inhabitants of the city went and left and went and lived somewhere else, and there was no bloodshed. But the vast majority of times, the city would say, no, you're not taking us over. And it started with the city of Jericho, as we see in the book of Judges, uh, Joshua. But they always offered peace first. God said, when you walk into this land and you're ready to take a city, offer them peace. They weren't often taken up on it, but they were to offer peace. And in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse, um, uh, say, 16 through 18, these three verses, kind of helps us understand what was wrong with the people that were li was living in this land before Israel came to possess it? They were not innocent in any terms. In verse 16 of Deuteronomy 20, God says, However, in the cities of the nations that your Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, that is the promised land, do not leave alive anything that breathes, Completely destroy them, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezrites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods 
and you will sin against the Lord your God. So why did God command Israel to go into this land and conquer it and not leave people around? Don't leave them be. They need to leave for the very simple principle that bad company sometimes corrupts good morals. Sometimes bad influence does indeed rub off and influence your character, your morals. And God said, you cannot let them live with you because their practices, the gods they believe in, the language they use, the way they treat one another is not what I'm calling you to do. I'm calling to you to live a life of holiness, and they are going to lead you in nothing but trouble. And when you leave them in your presence, the writing is on the wall of what your character is going to be like, how you're going to talk, how you're going to behave, how you're going to treat one another, and how you're going to think of God. And if you leave that in your presence, it's going to rub off. That opens up a huge can of worms. How do you live in a culture and a society like we do today that has believers and unbelievers, Christians and non-Christians, working together, going to school together, interacting with each other, doing entertainment and sports together? How do you overcome that bad influence that they're going to bring you? They're not neutral. There is no such thing as neutral influence. They are either living for the glory of God or not for the glory of God. There's only two options. There's never a neutral option. Well, if you're asking that kind of question, then I would refer you back to the series we did two series ago when we talked about cultural war and how we are to live as believers in a society that is unchristian, unbiblical, and anti-Christ at every stage. There's no neutrality in how we approach God. And so Israel is told, you're not getting this land because you're great people. And you're getting this land because there needs to be judgment upon these people that have turned their backs on us. And one of the easiest ways to see what this culture and society was like in Israel or in the land of promise, it wasn't Israel yet, it was still the land of promise, is to look at First uh, Romans chapter 1. Eventually, we are going to get to judges, eventually. But in Rome, because these are very foundational these are foundational, very important things to have under our understanding when we approach the book of Judges. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is talking to the church at Rome and uh, gives some great, great doctrine at the very beginning of the chapter of chapter 1. And then towards the end of the chapter, he kind of tells us what life was like without Christ. And he starts in verse 21 and says the following. And I'm going to read here a little bit, so uh, I'll try to make it interesting. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. What he's talking there is that when people are left to themselves without the influence of God, they worship idols. Things like birds and trees and rocks and rivers and mountains and spirits in the sky and moons and stars and planets, they, they start worshiping other things. They replace God as a, who they worship, and they start worshiping things they made in their own image. And God says, I give them over to that. 
That is what they want. He continues in verse 24, Therefore God gave them over to these sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, to the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed sinful acts, shameful acts with other men, and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to the depraved mind, so that they would do what they ought not to have done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. And they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they do only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. I can't help but think, as I read what Paul wrote almost 2,000 years ago, that he's kind of writing for us today. Is he not? When a culture, when a society, when a family, when a person gives up worshiping and following the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Lord Jesus Christ, when they consider that foolishness, God gives them over to their sinful passions, and it leads to absolute ruin and decay. Now, society may still be a society. They may still have a country, and it functions economically, and it still runs. But in their heart, in the very soul of that nation, that family, that person, God gives them over to their sinful ways. And Paul does not hold back on what God's opinion is of those sinful ways. They're deserving of death. Not by our hand, but God's judgment absolute moral decay. If you want to know what a society or a person looks like without God, without the triune God at the heart of their lives, the heart of their passions, Romans chapter 1 tells us exactly what it's like. That is what the people lived like in the nation of Israel before Israel came in. Everyone was given over to their own sinful passions. Without any outside control at all. So when Israel was told to go in and take this as their promised land, the people living there were not innocent people. All of these ites were not innocent. They shed their own blood. They turned their back upon God. They hated God. They, incest was rampant. Immorality of every kind was there. They were deserving of judgment. This was a righteous act of God bringing judgment, but first he offered them peace. Reconcile or face God's judgment. That brings us in 
to Judges. Judges chapter 1, we're going to look from verse 27 to verse uh, 36, the end of the chapter. And again, these are summaries, so these are broken up in little spots. And today, I have my very handy-dandy outline map, which I know you can't see because it's kind of far away for you, but uh, I have everything listed down here, and so we are going to know every location that's talked about in Judges chapter 1 in relationship to Pueblo. Everywhere from Northridge to the Outer West Side to Goodnight to the Regency area. How many of you have heard of the Regency area? All right, so everyone from Pueblo. Okay. I, that was a new one for me. I was kind of excited to find that out. And uh, East Fountain, Upper East Side, Outer East Side, Lower East Side. They could have just called it all East Side, but they had to divide this almost sometimes by street, it looks like. Uh, and then Big Hill. Has anyone ever heard of the Big Hill area? Okay, everyone from Pueblo. All right, so you guys probably already know the map, but for me, it's incredibly helpful, and we're going to work through this. If you're not from Pueblo, who's here not from Pueblo? All right, see me afterwards. I'll give you a picture of it, and you can uh, look at it next time. It's, it's very simple and fantastic. And it even has, at the very bottom here, uh, Lake Minno Minnewaka. Lake Minnewaka. All right. What? Minnewa. Minnewa. Qua. Minnequa. Not Minnequa. Okay, Minnequa. Because it's spelled really different than that. The lake down there. All right, so starting in verse 27, we are talking about an area in verse 27 that is considered, and it's a pretty large area, so you're going to have to draw the lines, from the west side to the state hospital to Big Hill all the way up to University Park. So it's one of the larger areas of land. Okay? Everybody, most of us know that area or understand that. Sometimes, and this is kind of just a precursor, sometimes, especially in the Old Testament, uh, I will read a name of a place, and in your scripture, it's going to have a completely different name. It's not that I'm mispronouncing it. There's a good chance I am. But sometimes I'm not mispronouncing it. It's sort of like saying very specific spot versus a general spot. So I could say, you know, east side, and we know the east side. Or I could say the outer east side being more specific. And so sometimes in Scripture, the translation of the area is just east side. But the translators know it actually means the outer east side. And so they may change the actual name of the city or the place, trying to be more specific or more general. So uh, it, it happened uh, earlier in chapter 1 where we talked about the Negev. In some translations, it's the Nebev with a B instead of a G. And that's just sort of a bigger area versus a smaller area. So even though I may be mispronouncing all the names, generally... Some translators try to be very specific about the location, and some are just more of a general sense of the uh, uh, area. So here we are, starting in verse 27. So that area of the West Side State Hospital, Big Hill, all the way up to University Park, is in verse, chap uh, verse 27 of Judges chapter 1. Wow, it took us about 15 minutes just to get to Judges chapter 1. But it was worth it, because this, this actually goes quick. Uh, but Manasseh, who is one of the 12 tribes, Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bashan or Tanakh 
or Dor, or Iblam, or Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in the land. All right, so they're, they're instructed to go into the land and take over all this area, and it's a very large area, the second largest area, given to one of the tribes. Judah was the largest area, and then Manasseh. Um, they were told to go in and take all this land, huge amount of land, but the people that were living there liked it, and so they kind of stayed. And so it was tough. They didn't follow through doing the tough thing. In fact, we're told in verse 28, when Israel became strong enough, that is, when that tribe became strong enough, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. The writing is on the wall. I know what's going to happen in chapter 2, even before I read it, because they compromised on what God told them to do. The reason why they were to drive out the Canaanites completely from the land, it didn't mean kill them, but drive them out. Don't let them exist with you. Don't let them live with you. Don't let them be servants in your house because they will have one objective, to water down your love for God, to water it down, to make you compromise, to make you more like them. And, of course, that's our goal, right, with others. We want to make them more like Christ. So we call them to repentance. I, I have had this unusual activity on my Facebook page for the past, like, two months. I've been getting all these friend requests from Mormon missionaries in the area. And I'm, like, I'm really baffled at that because they always say, Oh, hi, Tim. I see that you're a pastor. Uh, let's be friends and get together. And I'm like, first of all, you're 19 years old. I don't think we're going to have really all that much in common. My, my exciting evening is having a cup of coffee watching TV. It's not, well, I don't know what a Mormon missionary's excitement is either, but it's not coffee. Um, but I'm getting all these requests, and I said, you do know that I'm a pastor, that I'm Christian, and I'm going to tell you about Jesus. That's my entire goal, is to make you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, so you'll be saved. You know that, right? And, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. Like, Because your goal is to convert me. Not argue. I don't want to argue. But my goal is going to be to convert you, to show you truth and confront your lies. If I let them into my life, if I let them be my closest of friends, if I don't think all those details really matter because we're all after the same thing, loving God. They love a completely different God than the God of Scripture. They love a God imagined by a real madman, imagined and made up to the point where they believe that Jesus Christ and Satan are actual physical blood brothers. One chose a path of goodness, one chose a path of not so much goodness. That's nothing in what Scripture teaches. I can't be friends with them. I can't hang out with them. I can't just get together and talk. I can witness to them and evangelize them, but we're not on equal playing fields. I'm here to, to show you the gospel, and they're here to do the same, to show me their news. And so Israel, verse 28, when they became strong enough, instead of kicking them out, they made them slaves. They made them slaves. That's not what God told them to do. God told them, get rid of them, dispossess them from the land, and send them packing. 
not make them forced labor because their influence is still there. Verse 29, nor did Ephraim, and, and Manasseh and Ephraim are the two sons of Joseph, and they became tribes of Israel. Uh, so Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Uh, this area is uh, the Aberdeen area, which is north, east, west of us. Aberdeen area. And so the Ephraimites were to dispossess them. They didn't do it. They let them live with them. Didn't even enslave them, didn't even make them servants, but just said, you know what, it's really tough to get you out of your house. I know you've lived here a long time. Just don't bother us, we won't bother you. Never ends well. He continues in verse 30. Neither did Zebulun, another one of the tribes, drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron and the hollow. And these Canaanites lived among them, but Zebulun did not subject them to forced labor. At least Manasseh, when they got strong enough, forced the Canaanites into forced labor. Whether right or wrong, they tried to control them. <laughs> Ephraim and Zebulun didn't even do that. Now this area, verse 30, is talking about the country club area. So that area, a little bit south of 50, that country club area, they took it over, but just basically gave up on the second part of driving them out. Instead, just let them live among them. Writing on the wall. Verse 31, nor did Asher, another one of the 12 tribes, drive out those living in Akko and Sidon and Halb and Akzib or Heba or Afik or Rehob. And that area in verse 31 is, um, well, there's no name on my map, but it is the intersection of 50 and Pueblo Boulevard. So that intersection over there, so it was According to the nation of Israel, it was kind of on the north side of Israel. But so it's kind of the north side, kind of off towards what they would see as the Mediterranean Sea. We see it as Pueblo West. Uh, so, uh, nor did Asher drive them out. And verse 32 says, And the Asherites lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land because they did not drive them out. So they just neighbor to neighbor. Now, that's being nice neighbors, but it's not what God said, because God said, you need to drive these people out. They have sinned against me. They deserve punishment. And if they stay in your midst, they are going to influence you. You think you're going to influence them, but they will influence you. And we have that same troubled expectation that if I am a Christian in someone else's life, it'll rub off on them they'll change. God says that's not how it works. If you are a light of the gospel in their lives and you are communicating God's truth, yes, there can be change. But if you just simply live with them and hope it rubs off, what's going to happen is it's going to rub off on the other way. They are going to begin to influence you more than you will influence them. Because they'll, they'll influence you. They will pressure you. I remember the pressure, the unbelievable pressure of just simply swearing in a group of friends that I thought were friends once I became a Christian and how challenging it was to rid myself of that habit when I was surrounded by people that's all they did every other word curse this curse that and while I would not do it and they noticed it wow it was really hard for me not to join in on them it was never hard for them to join in when I prayed 
or worshiped God. They just didn't do it. But it was really hard on me not to join in with their sinful activities because I wanted to be accepted. God says, when you get to that point, you wanting to be accepted by the ungodly, sinful, evil-minded, evil-practiced, you are already on the slope of moral decay. The writing is on the wall. He continues in verse 33. Neither did Naphtali, another one of the tribes, uh, drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath, but the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the lands, and those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced laborers for them. Uh, that area in verse 33 would be the area of Northridge. So if you know where the Northridge area, very far north, but in between 25 and, um, well, yeah, on the, on the west side of 25. Uh, this is where they were, and again, they had victory over them, and then just kind of, you know, we're used to it now. They're not going to influence us. We're more powerful. We're stronger. We can always overtake them if we want to. And they just let them live with them, compromising on what God told them to do. They said, if you let them live with you, we've already seen this in Deuteronomy 9 and 20, if you let them live with you, they will influence you and you will worship their gods. You will follow their practices. You will follow their sinful behavior and habits and you won't even realize it because you think you are still safe and secure not learning the lesson that God considers his people stiff-necked. You know what stiff-necked people are like? Let me give you an example. I just heard of this sermon illustration this morning, so I'm hoping I get it right. How many of you have goats? How many of you know about goats? Goats are not the most brilliant of animals, are they? No. So, I know of a family who has a goat, and this goat has the habit of sticking its head through a fence. And when the owner comes to help the goat, because the goat, I imagine when a goat's head gets stuck through the fence, it's hard for the goat to eat and drink, right? So without getting the goat out of the fence, what's going to happen to the goat? It's going to die. Does the goat know that? No. And so when the owner goes to help the goat out of the fence, guess what the goat does? Fights it. You are trying to help it get out of a dangerous situation, and it won't listen. In fact, it fights it. So it gets out of the fence. The owner helps it out. Guess what the goat does again? Goes right back to the fence, gets his head stuck. And guess what the goat does when the owner comes by to help the goat out of the fence? Fights it. That is the epitome of what a stiff-necked people is like. And God comes to you. God comes to a nation. God comes to a family and says, you, what, how did you get into this mess? And you're clueless. And God says, let me help you out of it. And you fight it. You resist it. You say, no, this is what I want to do. How dare you do this? You're infringing on my rights. I want to be here. And God says, if you stay like this, you will die. I need to help you out. And you fight it, and you fight it, and you fight it. And all of a sudden, you're free, and you're excited. I'm free. I'm happy. I can eat. I can drink. I can enjoy my time in the field. And all of a sudden, you go, oh. What's on the other side of the fence? Smack right back into the fence, and you're stuck again. And God says, all right, let me help you out, and you fight it. 
God says, as much as I love you as my people, as much as he loves you, we are considered sheep and stiff-necked. Two things I don't think we want accolades on our tombstone. They were a real sheep and stiff-necked. No one's ever had that on their tombstone. Maybe more people should, but we don't. These people have been warned by God, vocally warned by God's voice, don't do this. Don't let them stay and influence you. It will go bad for you. And all of a sudden, we've seen tribe after tribe after tribe after tribe half-heartedly do God's work. And I know that they convinced themselves, we did good. We came in and conquered. No, you didn't do what God said. God said, go in, take over the land, and push them out. Don't let them stay with you. They will influence you negatively. And not a single one of them have done it. Verse 34, the Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. Now, the Amorites, uh, the Danites, the Danites are part of Israel, one of the tribes, and the Amorites, uh, this area of town is going to be a uh, good night area. So I think just kind of just right over here, the good night area. The Danites were given that land, but the Amorites were living there. Now, the Amorites are different than the Canaanites. They're not blood-related. The Amorites are actually um, uh, uh, probably best understood as people who lived and possessed Iraq and Iran. So maybe Persian, but not exactly the same, but they come from that family line of Persia. So they were the ones that came in from the, the far east side. I mean, if you live like by 29th and a half street or further out, and you're, that, those are the Amorites. Those are the people way out there in the county. Um, they came in and possessed the area, the, uh, the good night area, which would be in our day and age sort of like the Gaza Strip. If you, if you know of Israel and the Gaza Strip, that's kind of the area they were in. Well, the Danites were given that land to possess, but the Amorites, they didn't want to leave. And so in verse 34, we're told the Amorites uh, confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. So instead of the Danites driving out the Amorites, the Amorites decided, no, Danites, you can't come any further. You're, no. You're not doing it. And so guess what the Danites did? Well, the uh, Amorites were determined also to hold down to Mount Hazra, uh, Ajalon, and Shabalim, all areas over the Goodnight area. Um, but when the power of the tribes of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites from, were from Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. Just two little areas in the Goodnight area. So it wasn't until all the nations of Israel got together and got strong enough were they able to confine the Amorites. That isn't what they were supposed to do. They were not supposed to confine or control any of them. They were supposed to dispossess them and send them packing, going back to their homelands, and leave the land free for Israel to inhabit and worship their God without the influence of sinful, pagan, wicked evil people. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Paul prefaces that by saying, don't be misled. Why? Because we have the tendency to think, I'm the exception. I'm the exception. I can't, I can 
be Teflon when it comes to the outside influence of sinners around me calling me to sin. I can, I can resist it. I can be the one that is the exception. So Paul has to say, don't be misled, don't be deceived, don't fool yourself. If you're hanging around bad company, it's going to rub off on you. It's going to corrupt you quicker than you rubbing off on them. Something to take home. In Proverbs verse 20, uh, chapter 4, verse 27, it says, Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. That's a call for us to realize that when I start to make compromise, even to the left or even to the right, when I start to make compromise, I need to avoid it. Proverbs says, just remove yourself from the situation. Don't think you can handle it. You are not strong enough. How does God describe his people? Stiff-necked. You think you're strong enough to resist it. I think I'm strong enough to resist it. I can't. You can't. But we often fool ourselves. If I just stand as a witness, meek and mild and quiet, I will win them over for Christ. The way we win people over for Christ is to tell them about Christ, to tell them about the love of Jesus, to tell them the peace that he offers, to tell them about the sacrifice he made upon the cross, to tell them about Jesus. And yes, we can live in a way that is peaceful without standing up on a soapbox preaching to people. We can do that through our lives, but we have to be actively pursuing that and not thinking it just happens in the back room somewhere. But we have to actively pursue pressing Christ in front of us. And so when we find ourselves compromising, the best thing to do is to remove ourselves from that sinful influence or it might corrupt us. The writing is on the wall for Israel. I'm going to close in prayer as the band comes up, and I'm going to ask for the courage for us, no matter where we are in our lives, to fight that temptation, to think we're the exception and we can live in a compromising way with sin. We can't. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, as we come before your majestic throne of mercy, grace, and tenderness, I ask that you would give us the strength to resist the temptation to feel we're the exception, that we're the ones that can handle it and do it differently. Father, you had nations of people in these tribes of Israel that led themselves into compromise because they thought they were the exception that they could handle it, and they couldn't. Help us, Father, to learn quickly and to stop being stiff-necked, to stop being hard-hearted, and to follow you with great conviction and without compromise. Help us, Father, to be men, women, and kids in the environment that promotes Christ, that's vocal to show the world that they can have peace through Christ. And may our actions and our speech always demonstrate a love for you above all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
So you may find yourself in a really tough spot right now. You may find yourself in areas where your foot has gone to the left or to the right. You may find yourself in a spot that might be filled with compromise. God is a miracle worker. He indeed can challenge and change your heart and life right here, right now, and in the next day. So pray to him and ask him, Lord, reveal yourself as the light of the world that I too might be the light to those around me. Have a great week, everyone. We'll see you next week. I know it's a little bit cold outside, so if you do take your time as you're walking out to greet people and say hi, that's fine. But eventually we do have to make our way out. God bless everyone.